Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Hello listeners, welcome back. I hope y'all enjoyed your summer, or if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, your winter. I took the whole summer off just to recoup, relax, you know, reinvigorate myself. Um, Spent some time with friends and family. Not quite as much as um, I would have liked maybe, but you know, overall it it was a good summer. But it definitely would have been better if it hadn't have been so hot. Climate change is real, y'all. It was incredibly hot here at KC this summer. We basically had 100 degrees, like, all of June and July, and it it's never like that. When I was a kid, we would have, like, one week, maybe, in August, where it was 100 degrees. Uh, you know, for the most part, it was 80s and 90s. And I read about, like... Crops like acres and acres and acres, hundreds of acres of crops dying this summer, and thousands of cattle dying out in western Kansas, and yet we had flooding in Kentucky just recently, and of course the western half of America is on fire like year-round basically, especially in the summertime. Speaking of hot, um, I learned this lesson the hard way recently. If you have to chop up a bunch of peppers, even if you think they're mild, please wear gloves. (laughs) Um, yeah, I forgot the gloves and I thought that I have mild peppers and mild jalapenos. It'll be fine. No, at the end of an hour, my hands were absolutely on fire. Um, so if this happens to you, here's what I found out. Wash your hands with olive oil and then wash with warm water and soap. Um, do it again if you need to. And if... That alone is not enough. Then make a like a paste or a cream. A cream I think is better with olive oil and baking soda. And scrub that into your hands wherever it's hurting. Let it set for at least 60 minutes. Then wash it off with soap and water. Um, on another slightly more serious note, September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. If you are depressed and considering suicide, please don't. You know, it might not feel like anyone cares about you or like you matter, but that's your brain lying to you. The chemicals in your brain are all screwed up. And I guarantee there will be people out there who you love who will be deeply, incredibly hurt by your death. So if you are in that situation, call or text 988 or chat 988lifeline.org to reach the suicide and crisis lifeline. And if you're online talk, uh, sorry, if you're uncomfortable talking on the phone, then you can live chat with someone at 988lifeline.org. You can also text NAMI to 741741 and be connected to a free trained crisis counselor on the crisis text line. All right, I have a few more um actual podcast announcements, but I'm going to do those at the end, so please make sure you listen all the way through. 
Okay, so welcome back, everybody. Welcome to my new listeners. So glad you decided to check out the show. This is Topic 1, The Empress Theater, Part 1 of Series 6, Historic Theaters. So if this is your first time listening, you picked a great time to check it out because we're starting fresh here. Um, confession, I almost made Topic 1 of this series about the general history of vaudeville and burlesque. And I know that would be super cool to cover. Um, I will cover it, just not in this series. I decided to stick more with the building itself than with the people. Um, mostly, you'll see. Um, that said, I have also decided to only cover theaters that were designed for the theater theater. You know, if you were built specifically as a movie theater... Like the Gem Theater in 18th of Mine, I'm not covering that one. But if you started off with shows and performances, and then, you know, maybe you transitioned into a movie theater, those are the ones that I'm going to be talking about. So the Empress Theater was built in 1910 and occupied the northwest corner of East 12th Street and McGee Street. That's pretty much right in the middle of downtown KCMO. Today, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development Food Distribution Center sits on that corner. So, spoiler alert, the uh, Empress Theater no longer exists. It was built by Sullivan and Considine Vaudeville Circuit. And see, this is part of why I was like, maybe I should cover the history of Vaudeville. Um, I, would, I will get to them in part two because they were the best rabbit hole and it's going to be a whole episode. Um, and there appears to be some debate as to who the architect was, but I will also get to that a little bit later in this episode. So according to cinematreasures.org, which has a vast range of information, and I'll tell you more about that source at the end of the show. Um, when it was built, the Empress opened under a 99-year lease. Now, that is extremely optimistic, <laughs> but good for them. And, you know, they started off with the bang from 1911 to 1913. The Carnot Company booked a series of short runs at the imprints, and their star performer was none other than Charlie Chapman. In fact, the very last that he ever performed with the Carnot was at the imprints in Kansas City. But after a few years, the theater is becoming less and less popular. Um, and before long, instead of signing A-listers, they're getting like C and D-list shows. And they also start hosting burlesque shows at this time. Alright, so speeding up a little bit, in 1936, the Empress is rewired for sound and picture and becomes, quote, an adult film theater, a.k.a. it's showing dirty films. But please keep in mind that this is the 1930s, okay? The Hayes Code, and we're going to get off on a little tangent here, um, the Hayes Code is around in the 1930s, right? And... You might be like, well, I don't recognize that, but I can pretty much guarantee that you know what it is, even if the name is not clicking for you. So the Roundhay Garden Center, produced by Lewis Lee Prince in Leeds, England in 1888, is considered the very first motion picture ever recorded, right? Um, so already movies are a lot older than y'all realized. And silent films, if y'all have never watched a silent film after this, Look up Charlie Chapman, who I mentioned a moment ago on YouTube. It's a specific type of silent film, but it's seriously hilarious, and y'all will chuckle at the very least. Alright, so silent films 
are popular from 1890 to 1920. So basically as soon as movies are invented, right? And the first talkie, as it's known, was the jazz singer, which premiered August 6, 1927. And then we have what's known as the golden age of Hollywood, which is the 1930s and 40s. So this is all coming back around. The Hayes Code, its official name was the Motion Picture Production Code. It was named after William Hayes, who was the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. Quote, Hollywood in the 1920s is a super racy time. Films were beginning to mature. They were dealing with adult content. They were sort of racy and projected images of women in power and making their own choices. There were off-screen stories of drugs and alcohol and partying and overindulgence. After the Wall Street crash of 1929 ended the affluence of the 1920s, movie makers were caught between the racy tastes of the jazz age, try that again, of the jazz age, and the economic realities of the depression. Studios tried luring audiences in with salacious films featuring sex, violence, drinking, and the grotesque whose storylines reflected glamorous gangsters, sexually, I'm all tongue-tied today, aren't I? Sexually liberated women and class struggle, end quote. All right, so that's all from an article called Early Hollywood and the Hayes Code by Maria Lewis, who is the assistant film curator and also curator Chelsea O'Brien from the ACM, which is a film museum in Melbourne, Australia. So, Basically, um, during the 1930s, you're like hearkening back to the 1920s when everything was so good and glamorous, right? And you're trying to make it all sexy with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, and yet at the same time, we have the Great Depression going on. Nobody has any money. And you also have, of course, the backlash from all the ultra conservatives who are like, oh my God, how dare you include that in a movie? Um, and... The Hayes Code was used to prohibit the use of profanity, suggestive nudity, and graphic or realistic violence, um, also non-heteronormative sexual orientations, and rape. Uh, it had several rules regarding the use of crime, dance, religion, patriotism, and morality. So basically everything that Hollywood had done in the 1920s was outlawed. And if you ever watch an old TV show, even, you know, from like the 50s or 60s, and the married couple have separate beds, it all goes back to the Hayes Code. So when I say that the Empress is showing adult films in the 1930s, I just want you to keep that in mind so that you understand that those films are absolutely nothing like our rated R or X films today. Like, they're probably not even at the level of today's PG-13 films. All right, now back to the Empress. So in 1937, they began, quote, adding live African-American burly shows in which stage help was recruited with classified ads requiring no previous stage experience and no union card needed there, obviously. Shows began before noon and ran past midnight, end quote. Because, hey, guess what? In the first half of the 20th century, segregation is the law of the land. So before now, they've only been hiring white vaudeville and burlesque shows and now they're like hey we need something quote exotic how about some black folks the empress renegotiated renegotiated their 99 year lease um 
not long after they opened, to be honest with you, um, down to a 30-year lease. And um, I say it was not long before they, or not long after they first opened, because that 30-year lease ended in 1940. So it must have been, you know, 1910 even when they did it. Um, and then in 1940, the building was raised to the ground by Bonded Building Records, Inc., and even though it was already halfway down a deep slope, the nail in the coffin, from the way that it's described among my sources, seems to be the Empress's decision, um, like the owners of the Empress, their decision to advertise and screen the movie Ecstasy in 1938, which starred Hedy Lamarr. So Hedy Lamarr was considered the most beautiful woman in the world at the time. Uh, but she was also a brilliant mathematician who basically invented Wi-Fi back in the 1940s. I love her. She's such an amazing woman. Her life story is so amazing. The History Chicks have a fabulous episode on her. I highly recommend you find it and listen to it. Um, would they have been torn down in the 1940s when the lease ended if they hadn't shown this movie? Don't know. Can't say. But I think probably they would have still gone out of business pretty quickly. All right, so we're going to back up and we're going to talk about the architect. All right, so I have three different names here. Cinematreasures.org says Lee DeCamp and Cara Bowler. Cinematour.com says only DeCamp. However, the Biographical Dictionary of American Architects Deceased, which is a published work, doesn't list DeCamp at all, first off. And it says that Lewis Curtis designed the Empress. All right, so here are some super brief biographies for these three folks, because I have in mind to do a series on architects someday. Real brief. Um, couldn't find a single thing about DeCamp anywhere. Zip. According to cinematreasures.org, and this particular piece of information comes from a comment, um, I'm pretty sure that this website is actually a blog. Um, so take this with a grain of salt, but quote, DeCamp's connection with the Ballers apparently, and end quote for a second, by the way, I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it Bowlers or Ballers? It's B-O-L-L-E-R-S. If anyone out there um, is an architectural historian nut and knows, let me know. All right, so um, back to it. Here we go. Quote, DeCamp's connection to the Bowlers apparently went back to at least 1911, when one or both of the bowlers probably supervised the construction of the Empress Theater in Kansas City that DeCamp designed for the Sullivan and Constantine circuit. When Robert Bowler went to Los Angeles later that year, it was to work on projects for Sullivan and Constantine. It's possible that Bowler and DeCamp were assigned on some other projects over the next few years until Sullivan and Constantine circuit collapsed, and Robert Bowler returned to Kansas City by 1915. End quote. Now, the Bowler brothers, Carl and Robert, they are a well-known architectural firm here in Kansas City. Their parents, Charles Bowler and Pauline Grutzmacher, were German immigrants, and they had 10 children. Carl, born in 1868, was the second born, and Robert, born in 1887, was the youngest. According to the Missouri Historical Society website, Carl, who had no formal training, opened his own business... Carl Bowler Architect, here in Kansas City in 1905 at the age of 37, and Robert, age 18 at the time, 
joined the company a few months later as an apprentice. And while this page, the page on him at the Missouri Historical Society, names several theaters that the brothers designed, including multiple theaters here in Kansas City, it does not specifically list the Empress. It does say, quote, In 1911, Robert Bowler went to the West Coast to supervise architectural work for the Sullivan-Considine vaudeville circuit. Four years later, he was back working with his brother in Kansas City, end quote. So this indicates to me that they actually may have worked on the Empress after all. Then again, the Nebraska State Historical Society also has a webpage dedicated to them and enlists every single theater, or appears to enlist every single theater the brothers worked on, and once again, the Empress is not included. So, that kind of makes me think, maybe it makes you think, Lewis Curtis is a shoe-in for the architect, right? But I'm not convinced. So, Curtis was born in Bellevue, Ontario, Canada. He studied architecture at the University of Toronto and the École des Beaux-Arts. Probably didn't say that right. It's French. Um, in Paris, France, and he frequently traveled to Europe studying architecture. He moved to Kansas City in 1887, and he became a draftsman for Van Brunt and Howe. So, again, the Missouri and the Kansas State Historical Societies have web pages on him. But, again, neither lists the Empress as one of his accomplishments. Furthermore, a blog, kcrag.com, which has an extensive list of his projects, does not list the Empress. It shows that in 1910, the same year the Empress was built, he had 10 other projects he was working on, most of them in Kansas City. And, I don't know, I just don't see... Him being like, yeah, I have 10 projects I'm doing at the same time, and the Empress, making it 11. I mean, I don't see him having 10 at the same time. Anyways, that's just ugh, so much. Um, the overall connection to Curtis and the Empress seems to be a supposed secret tunnel from his apartment building, which was next to the theater, to the theater itself. But there's absolutely no physical evidence of such a tunnel. So, I don't feel that there is sufficient evidence to say one way or the other any of these men are without a doubt the architect of the interest, but personally, I am leaning more towards the Bowler Brothers. That's going to be the end of today's episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me as we explore this piece of Kansas City's history. As I mentioned earlier, in part two of this topic, I'm going to dive into the history of Sullivan Considine. But hang on, Considine, yeah, I think that's how it's said. Um, vaudeville Circuit, and it's wild. Y'all are going to love it. So, sources. I found a very, very cool website called Cinema Treasures. As I mentioned, I think it's a blog. Um, their about page is not very informative about who they actually are, though. Um, there's also Cinema Tour. Again, I think this is a blog. There's the Missouri, Kansas, and Nebraska State Historical Society websites. Um, I looked at some books and several vertical files from the Missouri Valley Research Center at the Kansas City Public Library. And last but not least is the ACM, which is a museum in Melbourne, Australia. It's all about cinematic history, and I had that super long quote about the Hayes Code from them. Um, yeah, that seemed like a really cool museum. It's definitely on my list now if I ever get out to Melbourne. All right, so here are those announcements. 
First, I want to say huge thank you to Ada E77, Stephanie Keith, Maya Acosta, Acosta. I apologize. Um, it's probably Acosta. Barbara, Steve, and Kolya Chi. I hope I said your name right. Um, thank you so very much for the lovely reviews that you left me about the show in June. Totally made my day to read them. Um, also, a small shout out to whoever my newsletter subscribers are. I'm sorry, I don't know your names. I just have your emails, which I doubt you want me to list on air. Um, but feel free to shoot me a message with your name. I think I can add that manually to my email database. Thank you for signing up, you three. Um, you are the first folks to sign up from my newsletter who are not related to me or very good friends in real life. So you people rock. And if you have not signed up for the podcast newsletter, you can do that on my website. All right, so number two, if you haven't already heard, I'm now writing a monthly local history column for the Pitch KC. It's all about women in Kansas City history. The first article was published in early September, and it's about the life of Muriel Kaufman. She sounds like a wonderful lady and would have been super cool to sit down to supper with her in real life. Um, you know, if, if we had lived at the same time, which we kind of did. Anyways, um, the article is titled The Forgotten Legacy of Muriel Kaufman's Dedication to the Sports, uh, sorry, to the Arts, Sports, and Kansas City's Sprawling Foundation. It is available online if you are interested in reading it. Lastly, I recently recorded a special Patreon episode with Dr. Ann Rabb, who is an archaeologist, and we recorded for International Archaeology Day, which this year is October 15th. And during the time, she informed me that September, in addition to being Suicide Awareness Month, is also Missouri's Archaeology Month. So I'm going to make that episode limited to everyone for a short time. Um, let me try that again. Available to everyone for a limited time beginning next week. And then um, probably a week or so after International Archaeology Day, it'll go back to being a Patreon-only episode. I hope you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the show. There are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Or you can give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or at coffee.com slash homegrownkc. That's ko-fi.com. You can give as little or as much as you want, even as little as $1 a month. You'll... Sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show. You'll be charged that day and then on the first of every month afterwards. If you become a patron, you get three things. One, an item from the store valued at $5 or less. A shout out on every show and social media posts. So thank you, Bjorn, Joan, and Gina for your continued support. And you'll get access to exclusive bonus content featuring local historians, archivists, and museum experts such as this one that I'm going to release for a short time. Everyone who simply donates will receive a shout-out on the next available episode, but you will not get access to that bonus content or anything from the merchandise store. However, if you donate to me on Kofi, coffee, however you say it, uh, 1% automatically goes to fight climate change, which is something I'm passionate about. If you cannot support me monetarily, which I totally get, you can still support me by following and subscribing to the show on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, Tumblr, and the YouTube channel. I'm homegrown KC on all of them. 
And make sure you rate and review me on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen, but especially Apple Podcasts. You can visit my website for additional information. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. And again, sign up for my newsletter there. I'm not going to spam you every day. It's going to be once a month. Usually the first of the month you'll get a letter that says, here's what we accomplished last month. Here's what I'm planning this month. Here's what I'm planning next month. It's a great way to stay up um, on what's new with the show. I first announced the column in the newsletter. And in the future, I may do some giveaways through the newsletter. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on any of the social media networks. If you want to check out what merchandise is available, go to zazzle.com slash store slash homegrownkc. Sorry, homegrown underscore kc underscore store. All right, all the way from the beginning. Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. I have a lot on there. T-shirts, hoodies, socks, masks, cups, hats. Probably already said that one. Um, I don't know what the sale currently is, but there's almost always a sale going on. So check that out if you're interested in some cool merch. Thank you goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the dear missus for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of the show. And to local libraries, which enabled me to gather on my research. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Seem to get you off my mind.